0: Welcome to Writers Talking, the podcast where we take writers and readers behind the scenes, sharing the stories within the stories. No scripts, no filters, and no holds barred as we talk about what really happens for writers as they write, edit, publish, and promote their work. Hi, I'm Anjanette Fennell, agent, editor, and writerly mentor who's worked with hundreds of writers to break through their creative challenges to uncover the stories they feel compelled to share. Now, let's get talking. Alison Stewart began her writing career halfway up a tree in the school playground where she wrote her first unpublished historical romance. Today, she is both an independent and traditionally published author who writes historical romances and short stories set in England and Australia and across different periods of history. She's best known for The Postmistress and The Goldminer Sister, stories set in the Victorian gold fields in the 1870s. She also writes historical mysteries as A.M. Stewart, and her popular Harriet Gordon mystery series is set in Singapore in 1910. Now a full-time writer in her past life, Allison worked as a lawyer across a variety of disciplines, including the military and emergency services. She has lived in Africa and Singapore and, when circumstances permit, travels extensively, all for research, of course. She lives in Melbourne with her husband and one elderly cat and sincerely hopes that at least one of her four grandchildren will one day share her love of history. Sonia Bates is a Canadian writer who's made South Australia her home since 1997. As a speech pathologist, she has worked with children with communication difficulties for over 25 years and now enjoys sharing her knowledge with speech pathology students as a part-time placement educator. She started writing for children when her two girls were very young and has several published children's books. Her debut adult novel, Inheritance of Secrets, was shortlisted for the inaugural Banjo Prize in 2018 And for the Best Debut Crime Novel category of the David Award in 2021. Welcome today to this podcast, I've got two really exciting authors. One is a returning author, which I always love. And we've got another new author today. Both of these authors have written in an area we haven't really jumped into much, specifically anyway. They both write historical, but I might let each of them, in addition to the bios that you would have heard, talk to us a little bit about the different historicals, they've written, whether it's historical mystery, I look, I'll be raising my hand. I just thought historical fiction. I wasn't <laughs> really aware that we were even going more sub-genre, but I absolutely love it. So, Alison, maybe you can tell us what different historicals <laughs> have you written?
1: <laughs> oh, thanks. Look, historical fiction is a very broad church from from the, you know, the the Thomas, the, K- the Keneally's that won the historical fiction prize, you know, yes. through to historical romance at the other end of the scale and, and all things in between. That, that's just sort of one slither of historical fiction. And then you throw in things, that, uh, as I also write, with historical mysteries as well. So, uh, so yes, I write, as Alison Stewart, I've written about 11 historical fiction novels set in different periods from the English Civil War through to World War One and covering britain and and australia and then also i also write as am stewart i write historical mysteries set in singapore in 1910 so mm-hmm. as i said it's a very broad a very broad church of uh, of different subgenres and and different different expect- reader expectations i suppose is the best way to put it okay
0: i've got a little other question in mind that we'll we'll get back to but Sonia, maybe you can tell us what have you
2: written that falls under that umbrella of historical in the blank. Sure. Thanks, Jeanette. I come from a very different background in that I write in a number of different genres, let alone the subgenre. So Inheritance of Secrets was my first adult novel, but also my first attempt at historical fiction as well. And it's actually, first and foremost, a thriller, and it's got the two timelines. So it's got the contemporary timeline, and then it's got a historical timeline set around World War II and just post-World War II in both Europe and in Australia. So that was something very new for me and a a big leap from the children's fiction that I Been doing before.
0: Okay. Wow. I mean, huge leap, (laughs) I would say. And well done, you, because I have to applaud every time an author, and I know from publishing perspective, strictly speaking, a lot of times a publisher might say, We want you to go this direction, and they love that, that one. But as a champion of the writer, I love to see writers expand and challenge themselves in these different genres based on what they're loving and feeling, right? So it doesn't just have to be about, I've found a reader market and I'm going for that, but what feels fun? And I don't know a single writer who doesn't write, I mean, I'm sure it's true, but at least conceive of ideas for different ages and or in different genres, right? You don't have the same dream every night. No, no. Different (laughs) different dreams. And
2: people have asked me, you know what I'm going to be writing next, and is it going to be another historical or another can, you know, adult crime sort of thing? And it's really the story that takes me. And in the middle, I'm in the middle of writing a middle grade fantasy novel, having written a second adult one as well. you know, so I'm really going in different directions and just finding the characters that that grab me and the stories that grab me,
0: okay. Well, this isn't. And I'll have to challenge myself to see if I can remember that question I had for you. It's still sort of here, Alison, but what I wanted to dive into, because you've got those 11 novels and you are writing historical, but in these different subgenres, it makes me think about research. And I'm really curious because I wonder how much time do you spend on actual research or is some of it like the story comes to you and maybe, you know, a little bit about it. Do you spend a lot of time doing research before you write? Do you research while writing concurrently? Do you, how do How do you decide, how do you know if the story, does the story tell you, oh, I'm a romance or, sorry, I'm a mystery, so I'm head, headed to Singapore.
1: I'm actually going to backtrack to what we're, what you were talking about before, and that, that's about, you know, how, how do, as a writer, how do you jump around and try different things? And my first few books were set exclusively in the English Civil War because that was my passion period, has been all my life, really. And so so actually writing books set in the English Civil War is quite a doddle, really, from the point of view of research. But, I mean, the definition of madness is to go on doing the same thing <laughs> (laughs) expect a different result and much as I had a small and loyal readership of my English Civil War novels it was obvious that uh, English Civil War was never going to be the next Regency and so I sort of started casting around for different ways I could I could write in different different periods I could write in and I went to a workshop in uh, one of the American RWA conferences about about reinventing yourself and about finding different ways of sort of uh, of of writing and the one thing that really stuck the light bulb moment I had was to understand that every writer has a core story and and that um, and once you understand what your core story is it actually doesn't matter that you're going to set your book in the English Civil War or in 30 20, you know, it's, it's, it, you're still writing a story that's true to yourself and, and is true to your own voice, which I thought was a really interesting way of looking at it. And once I'd sort of kind of got that, got that, uh, that then, then I was happy to explore, for example, writing stories set in the uh, Victorian goldfields in the 1870s. Mm. Now you'd think writing something set in my own backyard. <laughs> in comparatively modern times would, would be easy. Frankly, would rather write a book set in the English Civil War because the research <laughs> is huge. But to actually answer your question is story characters come to me first, but I do try and hang my stories on reality and on actual events that happened. So I do sort of cast around looking for something that was contemporaneous that, that speaks to me that I think, well, actually that that is a situation I can imagine characters reacting to, mm. characters being... Being in. So, for example, um, <clears throat> with the gold miner's sister, which was the second in the Maidens Creek books, that that was around a, a mine disaster. Now, if you know about the Creswick mine disaster, that uh, that. Jumped out at me immediately as being something that I would like to sort of include in the story. So, so that sort of gives me the hanger to hang the story on. If that, and then I go from there. As for well, you can spend your life in research and never, never actually write (laughs) a story. So I, I do try and be a little bit disciplined with myself with first drafts and at least get the first draft down. And if I think there's some major major thing that needs researching. I might do a very quick sort of afternoon, quick zip through Wikipedia to have a look at it. But if it's just something really silly, I'll just make a note of it because I use Scriven. I just make a note on the side, you know, research whether women were carrying handbags in 1870, you know, that sort of plot point. And it may well be when I go back for the revisions, I, I no longer even need to know that particular point. But yes, I could spend hours and hours chasing down rabbit holes of research. Wonderful way to procrastinate, but doesn't it?
0: Well, that was going to be one of the questions. (coughs) Is that one of the ways, and some people might say self-sabotage, but it's uh, writers, especially, or any creative, I think, is particularly adept at finding things they have to do before They sit down and do the work. And I think it can can be both. To be gracious, I would say that sometimes it's because if it's character or story or that core story, I love that you went to a workshop on that. I phrase it a little differently, but it's that same concept that we have to see through a particular theme or challenge until we're no longer obsessed with that. And you're right, Hmm. the vehicle that we take to get there could be a spaceship or it could be a rowboat, or it could be a, I'm not sure. Yeah. Like a a horse-drawn carriage, but that same issue is coming up again and again, and you get to maybe delight yourself with how they choose to get there. But when you are doing research, there is that difference between Am I just procrastinating sitting down at the page or am I waiting for some of these little things to sort of shift in my mind, mm-hmm. right? So it's not I would just give that little note to most writers. Every time you're not sitting down and doing the writing, isn't you avoiding it? Sometimes there's a process to it. So. Yeah walking and moving or cleaning, God help ya! If that <laughs> helps you work things out, sometimes you do get that stroke of inspiration from doing something else altogether. What oh, about you. you, Sonia, especially jumping from children's to God forbid the people who think that children's writing is the easier writing. <laughs> I don't know what easier writing looks like. I haven't, haven't actually it's experienced just different. that. <laughs>
1: uh, but I, I wouldn't even know where to begin. <laughs> yeah,
0: <exactly. laughs> but going from there, Part two, a, a dual timeline especially but something that has that historical did you like Allison was saying did you start with sort of the characters and what conundrum they had or how did you approach that research part too?
2: Yes I did definitely start with the character and it was the historical character of, of Carl who's a, a German soldier and I had some inspiration for that because my dad was a German soldier wow. and I'd always sort of wondered about what that was was like for him just Knowing his personality and everything, and I found that I had to do a lot of research around Germany before, during, and after the war to get a sense of his character and how he would be thinking, and and the kinds of things he would be doing and what he would be involved in, and you know who he would be interacting in. So with so I needed to do a lot of more broad research to get a picture of the times and how he would be thinking as a you know adolescent growing up, being in the you know in the Hitler Youth and, you know, knowing that he was going to be conscripted into the into the wars, so, Yeah, so that was a big part of it, and then as Alison said, you know, as you write the story, then you get a better idea of what specific research you wanted, and I had this grand idea that I was going to write this sort of family dra- drama, saga kind of thing of this German soldier moving to Australia, and his legacy of, of what his children and his grandchildren in, in Australia, and it just, it, I had this idea in my head, and and it just i couldn't get any ideas i didn't know where to start or anything and then i i actually sort of had the the scene sort of popped in my head of, of, for the contemporary section the start of the contemporary section where he is murdered and then i thought okay he's he's had an interesting life and he's getting murdered in his in his 80s what what happened to him that that's caused this and so that's sort of where it started and and then I could really sort of move, move on and I knew that it was had to be the dual timeline so it, it was very daunting because so so different from what I'd written before wow. uh, but ex- exciting as well and it, it took a, a long time for me to get my head around that this is what I was going to do I sort of kept pushing it aside knowing saying no no I'm going to maybe someday I'll do that maybe someday this is too much but yeah the character just wouldn't go away and I knew I had to write that story and so I Delved in.
0: Wow. Do you have that? I see you nodding, Alison. Have you had that experience as well where you're thinking maybe not this one, but the character just keeps persistently oh. tapping you on the shoulder? <laughs> like, no, a- absolutely. I I
1: have got the I've got the great Australian novel that's been tapping me on the shoulder for probably 20 years now. I still haven't got the courage to sit down and write it. Yeah, no, just just sometimes the voices in my head are getting louder. <laughs> <Need to, laughs> what well, is that? Better.
0: How you jump too? So Sonia. you you were talking about, you wrote Children's, and then you wrote adult, and you followed it up. You've got another adult novel, but now you're jumping back to middle grade fantasy. Allison, do you find once you jumped, you're like, okay, I've done these. I'm gonna sort of expand into these other areas. Do you have multiple projects on the go at once as well? I would ask both of you. Do you do you keep something sort of bubbling away, or you get sidelined and you think, no, this is where my obsession is right now, even though I've started that one how does, it, what does that it. process look
1: like I can only write one book at a time i've i've uh, over the last few years I've been settled cursed <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> what the word would be with having uh, having two quite separate contracts with two quite different publishers for two very for you know for very different books so I kind of view it like a stovetop where yeah. you where you work on one you know stir the pot and and when you're satisfied that one's okay, you know you've got a, a first draft of that one move it to the back of the stove and then pull in the next one and, and <laughs> work on that one till that at first draft, instead you circle the other one back again, which is not an ideal way of working, but it does at least. I think you have to allow time for to carry on the food metaphor to, for stories to set. Yeah. Um, you need time between drafts to sort of let your own brain settle and let your own thoughts settle, and you'll come back to it with with cold, those cold, hard eyes that you need for the revisions and the edits and all the rest of it. But actually working on, you know, I'm going to work on this story this morning and that story this afternoon doesn't, doesn't work for me may do for some other people, but I'm very monogamous with my books one at a time.
0: (laughs) Serial monogamous. I was going to say, look, every writer's experience of (laughs) the process, I have to honor what they feel above what feels best. But in fact, Alison, what you're describing is what I would tell most writers who want or aspire to be a full-time author. The only way to be able to write at any given time, because the publishing process takes has multiple steps as well, right? You write the first draft, and then you have to let it set for a bit. And I say, at least four weeks, please (laughs) don't start editing straight away. You haven't got the perspective yet. So having another project that it's at least somewhat interesting. And look, a deadline and a contract certainly give you extra impetus to switch to while that other one is setting is actually a beautiful way of doing it. You're you're creating one maybe whilst another one is waiting for an edit. And then that one goes back and then you get this one back for a structural edit. And then, you know, you're switching off, but you're right. <laughs> this project in the morning and that project in the afternoon or evening, look, I can't say it can't be done, but yes, that would be challenging for me unless they were incredibly incredibly different. And it felt like play to be in either one, right? Mm-hmm. So, but again, it depends on, <laughs> I love your dating sort of a metaphor there with like being monogamous <laughs> Dating lots and lots can be challenging. And I don't know of anybody who does it very well with all the different partners. So that said, letting one sort of sit back and not get as much attention while you give more attention to another project feels more natural. But what has your experience been with that, Sonia? Do you you serial date in the same day? Do you change projects or is it virtually one at a time?
2: It's virtually one at a time. I can't go from one story to another within the same day. Absolutely not. In fact, I had trouble um, starting writing the first draft of my second adult novel when I was doing the promotion for Inheritance Mm -hmm. because I had to have that at the top of my mind so that I could talk about it and and answer people's questions with some sense of, you know, logic and uh, applying to the story. And that when I'm writing a first draft, when I'm editing, I'm completely in those characters' heads, not the other ones. So I would do something similar to what Allison is saying in writing a first draft, putting it aside and then working on something different. And that's where I find going from adult to children's really, really helpful because it is so different and especially something like children's fantasy or children's science fiction or something I can put it away for a few months while I write a first draft of that children's novel and then come back to it and and have a completely fresh head with no new adult characters in in my own head so that works really really well
0: well one thing you said it reminded me of our friend in common nina who has talked before on the podcast about that challenge going out and promoting and of course you're trying to write the next novel but being the process she goes through and it sounds like you as well and maybe you too alice and when you are in it you're listening to certain characters voices and you, you want to feel enveloped in it. Some writers even talked about getting to a point sometimes in stories when they're creating it that they feel like real life, and I used air quotes listeners, is the unreal part because all they long to do is get back to the story and the story world. So splitting your time between promotion of a book that for the readers is like, oh, it's just out now. <laughs> but for you, and I have heard other interviews where authors do talk about it, and I'm sure we see that in energy. Entertainment as well. People promoting a movie or a television show and they're like, I'm long past. How do I get back <laughs> to my excitement and that obsessive energy and then go back home and try to uh, shut off that world, go turn this world on?
1: I think the worst and most disruptive moment is uh, when you are deep, deep in a, a, a new project. And then the edits arrive for the last project yeah. that you, you yeah. handed in like six months ago. And you really have to pull yourself out of out of one project back into this other world that you've left behind. And look at commas and questions. <laughs> uh, and and I mean and that Nobody, nobody tells an author before uh, before they become published how much time you spend on on, on edits, particularly with traditional publishers. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you hand that book back to the publisher, and then you've got to read yourself back into the book that you've been working on. I, I find I find that the most disruptive part of the whole whole process, necessary but so disruptive.
0: Yeah. Look, if we could find a solution to that, as you guys are saying that, I really feel that as well because. Sometimes it's a mix of hard one, right? Hard one getting back into the story when you've been interrupted. Like Mm. if you're in flow and then somebody kindly comes in to offer you tea and you're like, get out. (laughs) I don't. Hey, you know, they're trying to be supportive, but it feels like the opposite of supportive because you were in it. So almost like a, a time travel or something like that. If I can, I'm going to have that percolate back there and see if I can come up with some some ways for people to streamline that entry back in. But at the moment, it's just this thing that every author I've talked to has in common. Go through,
1: yes. That challenge,
0: yeah, you go through. I am thinking, and this was sort of what came up earlier, and only because each of you has this experience of working on these different projects. At at the very least, whether you're doing historical romance would have a very different core feel to historical mystery, even though there are lots of similarities. But whether you're doing historical, contemporary, or fantasy, that you universal theme, right? That you're, that you're finding, but saying that and Allison, because we've had previous discussions <laughs> about the joys, the trials and tribulations of of traditional publishing. And when they're like, yeah, nah, we're done that type of book. So we're just moving on. Do you get drawn? So at the moment you've got a pseudonym. So you you're publishing under two different names at least. And Sonia, do you publish under different names for your different types of books as well?
2: Yes. In that. Sonia Bates for my adult and then Sonia Spreen Bates for my children's.
0: Okay, there you go. Does the intellectual component, that marketing piece, I know that it, it plays a role. And some things you've said, Alison, made me think about this. Do you feel led to write one thing or another based on reader response or is it solely... I know I have to publish under a pseudonym because it's a different market and I have to differentiate myself. And a publisher, by the way, often will say, especially for children's books, they want to make it different. So it may be just initials and then surname, or you've got the, the three names for your children's books. How does that work? How does that feel where you're like told at a very intellectual level, this is what <laughs> you should write under this? But that's not where the creative process starts.
1: Um, that, right? I haven't noticed that as being an issue. I, I'm quite conscious that um, it's two, certainly two different brands. But I, I uh, and I tried to sort of, when when I started off being A.M. Stewart and Alison Stewart, I started trying to have like different newsletters for, for those fans and different newsletters for the other fans. And after a while, I thought, no, this is actually just tearing me apart. Uh, I I am essentially me. I don't make any secret of the fact Alison Stewart also writes as A.M. Stewart, so I just now have the one newsletter and, you know, I try and put something for both readers of both into it. Um, so I, I'm not I'm not feeling particularly torn. The, the, the things that amuse me about the readers is particularly writing a series where I'm using the same characters, which I, I am with my Singapore sort my Harriet Gordon mysteries, is the readers are now invested in those characters and the reviews are sort of uh, oh we want this to happen or we want that to happen to them And that actually can be very really mess with my brain a little bit. You have the ones that go, oh, we really hope there's going to be a romance. And the others go, well, we're so glad there's no romance happening. (laughs) 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 Right. Who the hell am I writing for? Yes. Well, it's funny. We often
0: say don't listen to the naysayers, right? And I stick with that. And you only go to Goodreads if you're going there (laughs) as a reader, not as the writer. But... How do you juggle? And I'll still want to go back and say, how do you handle it? Because I think that's a really relevant issue, especially for today, Allison, newsletters and brand building, platform building, when you write for different markets. And I love that you've said, as a writer, two newsletters is too much. (laughs) I'll have the one and I'll kind of have everything. And I trust that people are intelligent enough to self-direct where they want to go. Nora Roberts does it just fine, I feel. Yep. You know, yep. But the, so those two things, Sonia, how do you handle the two markets? Or does that mostly get told to you or handled for you? Or how do, how do you manage that part?
2: I really struggled with this when I first wrote the adult novel and got it accepted for publication about whether to have two separate websites, two mm-hmm. Facebook profiles, all that sort of thing, two completely different platforms. And I think I've in the end went with what the same thing that Allison said is that it's just too much to maintain it all and mm. I am first and foremost a writer and I need time to be writing not just to be <laughs> promoting and yes. so I just have the one website and it's it's definitely set into the two sections where the children's are on one side and the adults are on another you know unless I haven't had you know I had two books coming out very much close together one was in January 2020 and one was in May May 2020 yeah sorry yeah was made oh, wow. and so I, I needed to be promoting both of those as you know sort of my new releases and so then I had them definitely both prominently on my on my web page and and promoting both of them within the social media context but I don't know that I did it particularly well I'm not a particularly you know up on social media and that sort of thing but yeah that was the only way I could handle it it was just too much to try to separate it yeah
0: Hopefully that's where it's leaning as well were they with in that were they both for children was one a children's and one was an adults
2: no one was children's and one was adults and Ugh. one okay. was with a canadian publisher and one was with an australian publisher right and you um, know because let's uh, make it easy
1: yeah <laughs> yeah I, i've gone a little bit the other way in that i although i i now have a combined newsletter i have maintained separate social media presences for the two brands so i do have uh there i mean they're obviously interlinked. So you, you look for one and you'll find the other, but because they are so different, I, I felt I really needed a different looking website to for A.M. Stewart to Alison and Stewart and likewise the Instagram and, and Facebook pages as well are, are, are different. But I'm finding I am inter- I tend to interact really early, only on the one Alison Stewart, unless it's really very specifically a Harriet Gordon issue or, or something to promote. And then it all goes it all goes to that one. But yeah, those, I couldn't separate those. They re- I, I couldn't combine those. I, I still feel that they need to be separated. Mm.
0: It's so interesting, isn't it? I think mm. things are changing and shifting. And mm. as platform has become bigger and social media is bigger, we're all learning as well but I think it's really important to know and to again dispel this myth that all authors are really great and or love to go on social media need to go on love to go on could be separate um, <laughs> and I'm constantly saying what do I what do I do? what am I supposed to say? what am I supposed mm. to share? I just want to go back and write my stories so finding that balance where you're being authentically, you, which is honestly what readers like as well. But this leads me back to that, what you were saying, Allison. And this is where I'll get Sonia to weigh in too, because it would be different having different, vastly different readerships. Although if you get the adults, I have a, a sinking suspicion. They like your writing and they've got kids. Guess what the kids are going to be getting for presents and, and books to read, <laughs> which I, I can appreciate. But what happens when you hear conflicting things? So we're kind of going back to your creative process and how much you let positive feedback but almost not prescriptive but they want something right because they're going to want different things it's like five editors or rather say five agents you would get five different sets of feedback love this hate this and then the other one has the diametrically opposed advice take that out and and it's ruined and i've had that experience in submitting for writers with equally experienced and well regarded publishers giving exactly opposing advice about a manuscript. So how do you do that? You're in the midst of writing you happen to see some some good feedback. people are talking on your social media and saying, oh my god, I love this story. I'm so glad it has no romance and then the, literally the next comment is God, I really hope they get together. <laughs> and then, but you're you're in the middle of writing maybe the next story. How do you do, how do you handle competing positive feedback when it comes to creating? Do you just tune it out?
1: Uh, I think I'm now old enough and experienced enough that I can tune it out. And I think probably for my first few books, fortunately, social media hadn't been invented. So. <laughs> you, had, you had a little bit oh, of time. Oh, yes, the, the good old days. Uh, and certainly Goodreads hadn't been invented. Yeah, look, I, I think I can tune it out now. It's, you know, it's my sandpit, my rules. I know I'm not going to please everybody. Where I struggle is writing stories set in colonial Singapore, where I'm dealing with the sensitivities around diversity and that non-Anglo characters and that that's that's where it tends to get get into my head a little bit and oh my god you know I'm who am I going to who am I going to offend here or how am I not going to offend people and and when I'm writing in this set in this period where which was basically offensive so uh, I was gonna say you kind of gonna uh, fall into something um, that's probably the only area I really I really, really struggle in, and and try. I really have to trust my instinct and the good job. Ju- I haven't had a lot of problems with editors disagreeing with what I've written. generally in fact, universally, the feedback I've had from editors has always been brilliant, really good, and I'm being very happy with it. But yes, it is that that one particular issue does is the one that gets under my skin and and really causes me to doubt what I'm doing. Yeah, it's
2: hard to be true to the period and to put your own. You know, sort of morals aside, to to be able to portray them as they would have been portrayed back then, while not, you know, overtly offending people. Mm. I was going to ask you how
0: you handled that because you were talking about Germany in a very volatile time, and you know, us being children or even grandchildren of people who were there. Did either of you have either of you ever had a sensitivity reader or anything like that to to take you through that, or did you do what you were saying, Alison? You write it and then you send it to the editors and then they will likely potentially flag anything that feels outside of the scope of yeah what will I be
1: I've I've been quite lucky the editor the editors have, have not held back if they felt that I have overstepped a mark. I for okay. example the second Harriet Gordon story I actually had to change the murderer which <laughs> slightly slightly alarming. So if people <laughs> have, have trouble guessing who the murderer is in Revenge in Ruby. so there's a very good reason for that. Yeah so so that's uh that's difficult and have kind of struggled with that one, to be honest. Mm.
2: And what about you, Sonya? Um, I didn't. I haven't had a sensitivity reader. And in terms of World War II and it being set in Germany, and a, from the perspective of a German soldier, I did find in in my research that there were so many different attitudes of the German people, and I tried to portray a broad range of them within my characters, so that it wasn't. The, I wasn't denying that there were people there that were very strongly Nazi and believed in what Hitler was saying, but I didn't. You know. He went all the way over to the other extreme of people that were totally against him and spoke out and paid the consequences for that and were sent to concentration camps or, or whatever and then all those variations of people in between that didn't want to break the rules were, you know, sort of went along with things, weren't brave enough to speak out questioned it a little bit but, you know so there was, there was, I tried to just portray that in the, the variation of of views that, that the German people had at, at that time
0: I think it's really reflective of now,
1: yeah, just right? to ju- just to jump onto a little bit of what Sonia was saying there, I think what we. What we forget is there are good and bad in every era and every level of society. And I certainly know from writing, from what I see now, how I see colonial Britons portrayed, say, in, in on television or in the media. You know, you'd think they were universally awful, which they weren't. I mean, they were, as you say, you know, they were the good ones and they were the really real stinkers. But so, again, what I, I try to do, what you do, is is try and sort of have that balance within, within the stories that tries to show that both sides of the story that that you know you can't just dismiss. Well, all Britons were bad. Yeah. Colonisers were bad when they when they really weren't. And sorry, just to get back to the sensitivity reading um, question, I'm publishing the fourth Harriet Gordon on my own, and that's that's a bit more challenging because I'm not going to have that editor behind me. So I am actually considering a sensitivity reader for this particular book. So that's going to be, be really interesting. Be
0: interesting. Yeah, yeah, I would love to have you come back and and tell us what that process
1: is like as well. Yeah, I think- I'm very I'm very nervous. About <laughs> yeah, so shall, maybe I, I'm be, only just starting to think it through. So,
0: Well, I think we can only ever start from where we are, right? Mm. And so you're writing, we can't say the truth, the truth as we know it, the, the, truth is I know the story it, yeah. as it comes to you, and then making those changes as you get reflections or people sharing with you things we could not know. I think we're only in danger if ever we take the stance that no that's how it is. I've said it, or the characters told me and therefore. Those are the writers that I would worry about because of course, then you are really blocking out. And even if we say and believe that characters are entities outside and then they are being channeled or whatever, ultimately, nobody's going to sue the (laughs) the ethereal sort of entity outside of you, but they can sue you or they can cancel you or they can make your life hard. But I think all the writers that I talk to are very open and say, I was inspired to have these characters, whether they're unreliable or they seem reliable, having a sensitivity reader in addition even to an editor can be really important, especially if you recognize that your lived experience is so far away. I think we are in trouble if we go down that path. And I know there's a lot of conversation about this. I believe in own voices and I believe that part of creativity is expanding and we can't know if we only ever literally write what we have lived. That would preclude you from writing historical anything, right? Mm-hmm. You didn't live
2: then. No one would be able to write historical anything. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yes.
0: right. So so we can't go too far down that path, but that just reflects what you were saying, Sonia, and, and Allison as well, which is what we're looking for is not to be so dichotomous, like it's wrong or it's it's good and it's evil, and this one is good and this one is evil. It's part of what, to be honest, is really a struggle in our world today, that it feels very much like we've drawn Sides and nobody's listening to the other. So mm-hmm. if we try to make it very superficial and say, at this time, this world power was 100% evil and everyone who lived there was also, we know that's not true. Hmm. So in your stories, being honest and authentic about exploring some of the ways that you personally wouldn't have believed, but you're giving voice to those characters who may have abhorrent thoughts, but you're giving voice also to the characters who have the opposite, I think is really important, right? It also allows for different people to be seen when they're reading your books and say, Ah, this gives me access. I believe storytelling is important for that reason. If we tell stories, we can invite others to see things slightly differently than they did. Rather than lecturing them, we're entertaining them. We're giving, especially in the case of mystery or a thriller of any kind, there's something for them to figure out. But maybe they can see a little bit of themselves. And if you're setting it historically, they'll learn something. I think that's Hmm. what makes history interesting. I did have a high school teacher where one of our, our required reading was, ah, surely it wasn't Sydney Sheldon, but it was definitely... <laughs> A historical sort of family saga, and I thought that's a really good way of engaging new readers, whether you're saying they're younger or adult into looking at different parts of the world or mm. different sides of, especially the British colonialism in the different parts of the world too. Really tough, especially in Asia, I think. Yeah, you know, you
1: raise um, you raise a really interesting point there, and that's to do with our moral resp- uh, as writers, <laughs> moral responsibility for historical accuracy, mm-hmm. because readers do. Look learn their history from the books that they read, and you know, I, I've, I, I cite the example of the book I read set in Melbourne in the eighteen thirties that bore absolutely no relationship to Melbourne in the eighteen thirties. <laughs> <laughs> and what offended me was not so much the book, which was just hilarious, but but it was the reviews of the book that went, "Oh, you know, we're so glad you're you're teaching us about this <sighs> place and time in history we know nothing about," and it was it was just so fundamentally wrong from the first word onwards. And that, and that probably is what. Drove me towards wanting to write histor- Australian historical story because I think we needed to hear our own history told in our own voices. It's that own voices thing again, and so that there are the readers are getting a more accurate view of of what Australia was like in the 19th century, and not some fantasy version of it <laughs> dreamed up in mid, Middle America. But yes, I do believe that we have a moral obligation to be accurate, at least at least as far as the absolute died in the wool salient facts are. You don't move. You don't move the date of the of World War II, for example. Yeah, yeah. You might you know if you are going to play with dates and you tell it, you tell the readers this is what you've done. My current yes. story I'm based yeah. on a um a, an actual historical murder that took place and it suits me to move it forward 6 months so it fits in with the timeline of my characters but I'll go into that in great detail in the in the author's notes at the end so that uh, nobody comes back at me and says oh but that that happened in April the following year not in the <laughs> yes. seventh which which <laughs> can happen. So I mean, that that's that's my the my, my theory of it that there is this moral obligation to be accurate, and where you cut where you choose not to be accurate because we're not writing nonfiction, we are writing fiction. We make stuff up, yeah. but we tell we tell the readers when we're doing that. But you must do that, right? What do you yeah. think,
2: Sonia? I was really <laughs> concerned about authenticity when I started writing a historical novel, and not having ever done it before, I was really concerned that I wouldn't be able to make it really authentic and and to to be accurate with the historical details and and I found really early in the piece when I started out that you make assumptions about really basic things that aren't true. So for instance, I wrote a scene where the two men are in a a room in Stuttgart after the war. And I said that there was, I was describing the room and I said that there was a double bed in there. And I sent it to my dad and because he was reading some of the early chapters for me and he said, oh, no, no, no. He said, we didn't have double beds in Germany. He said it would, would have been two beds pushed together, two single beds pushed together and right then I went okay I can't make an assumption about anything that that was something that to me growing up in Canada living in Australia having traveled a little bit around the world I just assumed that everybody had single beds and double beds and that was it but they didn't have that and especially not back there and now having traveled to to Europe and to Germany since then yes it was two beds pushed together even,
1: yes. even now. yeah, yeah so, even now yes yes
0: well, what yes. I love is number one so may not have a sensitivity Reader, but definitely had someone reading along the way Mm -hmm. that could give you that feedback. And we needn't beat ourselves up for those things. But Alison, you'd said right at the beginning, and I love this, you would make a note. And so whether you thought of the note or it came back because of feedback from your dad, just those things that give us that reminder, double check because we have this moral responsibility of writing as correctly as we can, knowing Mm -hmm. right, I'm, you know, it's a made-up story, but it's placed somewhere that was real. And I want to keep to that. I always say that the magic is in the details. And so when you get that magical truth, I'm gutted. We always seem to come to just a certain time and we're really getting into the good stuff (laughs) with the conversation. We could go on forever, but I would love to have both of you on again. And I would especially love diving in a little bit more to these conversations about what we can do as writers and what is that line, whether we're, we're writing historical or even fantasy. I think a lot of people think fantasy means you can throw out all the rules, but that's not the truth. No, not at all. <laughs> How do you balance what you create with what we know? Because that is going to be tied all the way back to that core message, that core theme that you feel compelled to share, maybe with a slightly different audience But the truth is, it's going to be something that means something to you, which is why you're diving into it and pouring so much time and energy into having conversations with characters that come and tap you on the shoulder. But for this moment, this episode, I want to thank you so much for giving us a little bit more insight into what it's like for somebody who dives into historical, whether it's the umbrella historical fiction, or whether it's dual timeline, mystery or romance, I love all of it. Everyone who's listening, please check out the show notes. So you can check out all of their books. And if you are buying books for children, definitely check out Sonia's children's books as well. If you like mysteries or romance, dive in. I know we've got some new books that have come out recently, and hopefully I'll talk to both of you when your next book is launched and we can chat a little bit more about what each of those is about. But for now, thank you so much for joining us on Writers Talking. Thank you for having us. Thank Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Writers Talking. Join us next time for more Writers in Conversation as we delve into the writers' process, their passions, and a little bit about their books. Don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast player and follow us on Instagram at writers underscore talking underscore podcast.